0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, when we first moved up here, we had a hard time trying to find a place to place to live and looked at lots of different houses and there was a house in particular that we absolutely fell in love with. It was, uh, it was up on the mountain. It was uh, overlooking Lookout Valley. It was right on the right on the bluff. It was just down the road from where the hang, glider, hang gliders jump off the the side of the mountain and uh, not that we had any inkling to to jump off the mountain with hang gliders but had this big porch that that looked out. I mean it was it was just a gorgeous house and it was one of these we looked at several times and we were getting ready to uh, we were we were close to to putting an offer on this house, and uh, we we invited my parents to come back and look at it this afternoon, uh, this Saturday afternoon. And uh, it just so happens that our real estate agent was was running late that afternoon, and so we were kind of roaming around the outside, kicking around, looking at this looking at this house. And there was a pile of leaves that were had collected on the driveway and. If I remember correctly, uh, my son was kind of kicking the leaves around, and when he did, he found a, a crack where the concrete in the driveway had, had shifted, and I said, well, that, that's interesting, and we finally got to go in the garage, and we followed that crack from the driveway into the garage, into the wall of the house, up the wall of the house, and... That, that's a little alarming. We started looking really closely at the house and we found that there were lots of cracks in lots of places and so we said you know let, let's let's rethink this and so we had some some experts kind of kind of go and, and take a look at it and they said, you know this you know it's hard to, it's hard to kind of say what what 's going on here. went inside and there were cracks in drywall and places and said this uh this might have some issues, and so we told the owner of the home that we were interested in putting an offer, but the only thing we really wanted to do was, was to have a, a, one of these foundation repair companies come out and, and look at the place, and so we met out there one afternoon with an engineer from this uh, foundation repair company, and he started looking around. He laid lasers out in the house and got a measurement of how the floor was, was, was not quite level, and he said, you know, this part of the room has sunk a certain, um, certain amount, and this part of the room is, is, is plumb like it's supposed to be. He went outside, and he came back, and all was said and done. He said, you know, this house, is, this house has got some, some foundation problems, but we can fix it. It's like, well, I don't own it, so, so I'm not the one that you need to fix it for, and they, they said, I said, well, how much is it going to cost to fix it? And so he went in the truck and pulled open his laptop, and he had all the, all the laser leveling and all that stuff, and he brought back this, this detailed specification that it was going to cost $20,000 to solidify this, this foundation. $20,000. And I thought, you know, there's, there's absolutely no way One, that the owner's gonna come off $20,000 And two, that I really want to live in a house With $20,000 worth of foundation damage that was done So needless to say, we did not purchase that house and, and we're very happy with where we are now But I think we can all agree that we don't want any Nobody wants our house to look like this uh, This is, well, this was, let me say that this was a $700,000 home on Lake Whitney in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It doesn't exist anymore because it turns out that a, a large crack opened up in the wall that was tied to a large crack in the foundation that was actually tied to a large crack in the limestone underneath the house. And You can actually see that crack as it goes down from the bottom there. and Ultimately, that whole cliff face is going to, is going to fall off into the lake there. And so that house continued to crumble and continued to crumble until finally the fire department actually burned it down because there was no, uh, there was no, way, to, no way to save it. Uh, and, and you can look that up. The, the owners uh, give an interview, I think it's the USA Today, from their Miami Beach condominium. So I don't think they're probably hurting for anything, uh, but the insurance didn't pay for that. So, so that was just $700,000 just, just, just lost. Uh, even with all of our modern construction techniques, all of our efforts at building, they really don't matter if the ground beneath the structure will not hold the building. In this case, that was evident, and Someone lost their home, and I'm sure their neighbors are probably checking the foundation of their home on a regular basis. And what's interesting is this isn't something that we just figured out in the modern era. Jesus actually uses this idea from construction as a very practical illustration in his final appeal in the Sermon on the Mount. So throughout this entire sermon, Jesus has been making a a profound case for citizenship in the kingdom of God. He's taught us about why it is so radically different to be in the kingdom than than to practice that that rote, routine religion of his day. And, And he's given us a very compelling vision for citizenship in the greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so this is one last appeal that Jesus is making, and it comes to us from the world of construction. So if you've got your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the last illustration from the Sermon on the Mount today. Matthew chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 24. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, he'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, he'll be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was its fall. God, I thank you for the words of Scripture. Thank you for the wisdom of a man who builds his house on a rock. May we be wise today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. could be seated. You know, so many times people read this illustration and they get focused on the, the house, but this illustration really has more to do with the wisdom of the builder than the stability of the house. Well, again, with such a staggering illustration, it would be easy to focus on the consequences of the builder's decisions. Well, the truth of the matter is that structures are are very easily seen and and evaluated. You can walk into this structure and you can evaluate it. There's things you like and things that you don't like, but one thing that that you don't know unless you were around in 1986 is you don't know much about the the intention and the, the thought process and the design that went into actually building the structure in which we meet today. However, we, we have to remember that behind every structure, behind every building, whether it's a lean-to shed to cover your lawnmower up in the backyard, or the biggest, grandest cathedral or church building, that somewhere along the way there was a person or a group of persons who made a, a, a whole host of decisions in order to bring that structure into being. In the process of preparing for this sermon, I, I learned that there's a remarkable building in Wisconsin Appropriately, it's called the House on the Rock. And one of the most remarkable elements of the house is a room called the Infinity Room. It's designed so that when you when you stand at one end of the hallway and look down the room, it appears that the room never ends. That structure, the way it slopes at the end, is designed to, to create this optical illusion. But the infinity room, again, it's less a room, more of just a hallway. It goes 218 feet out over the valley below. I'm looking at it thinking I don't know if I'm going to walk to the end of that thing or not. It's supported by triangular shaped steel truss. Again, that's a that's an amazing piece of architecture. It's an amazing piece of design. It's easy to look at that and say say man, that is a that is a phenomenal structure. It's easy to be mesmerized by the actual building. But we need to remember that the real significance is it's not the building. It's not the the, the room, it's not that, it's the mind behind the building. The house on the rock was designed by an architect by the name of Alex Jordan. You can't look at a remarkable structure like that and not be impressed by the mind of the designer. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been calling us back from the externals to get to the heart of the matter. And here he's reminding us not to look at the house, but the wisdom of the builder of the house. If you remember back to chapter 5 in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21, Jesus talked about murder, that that murder is more than just the physical act. Murder begins in the heart. It begins with with uncontrolled anger. He talked about adultery in Matthew chapter 5 verse 27, that that doesn't begin with a physical act. It begins with a wandering eye. And so we're 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 accustomed already to the fact that, that Jesus is calling us to not look at the look at the physical, look at that reality, but look what lurks behind it. And then, of course, we have this, this very stern warning, warning in, in the first verse of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus simply says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Again, it's easy to see someone practicing their righteousness, someone practicing their piety. But when our righteousness is simply put on display that we can be evaluated by other people, Jesus gives us a very stern warning. Now, there's no doubt that real faith produces real fruit. However, we need to make sure that we check our motives for why we do what we do. And that's where this last parable gets to the heart of the issue. You see, at the end of the day, there are two homes that are built here in Matthew chapter 7. There's two houses that are built. And these houses might, in fact, look identical. And it's no secret that that both of these houses endured for a season. But only one home had the ability to endure the effects of the storm because that home was built by a wise builder. The point of the matter is this. It is not Christian acts that save us. It is not acts of religion that save us. It is not church attendance or mission trips or singing in the choir. As good as all of those things are, those things do not save us. Those are all good things. And those are all things that, that we should participate in. Well, not everybody should sing in the choir. But those are all good things. We ought to do these things. We are, our faith ought to have visible manifestations in our life. But men and women, if we get to heaven and we start trying to lay down all the work that we've done in hopes that that work will somehow or another grant us admission, we don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance. In fact, if all we have is the work that we have done, then Jesus has already warned us about how this is going to play out. Go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, there are countless people who on one hand will say that they agree that we are not saved by our good works, but if you dig deep in their hearts, you realize that at the end of the day, they're counting on their good works to get them into heaven. And that is a house that is built on nothing more than shifting sand. And since we know that the houses in the parable look the same, then let's take just a couple of moments to look at the character of each builder. Jesus tells us here that the wise builder is the builder who knows the building codes. Now, he doesn't use that language, but this is what he's saying. You've probably heard it said before, you know, that, that building's just not up to code. That building's not up to code. And and when somebody says that, you know what they're what they're talking about. That, that maybe the electrical system is, is out of date. Maybe there's there's some problems there. Maybe there's something wrong with, with the plumbing. However, if you hear that that there's a problem and the building's not up to code, you understand there is something fundamentally wrong with the structure. You don't want to go near it, much less purchase it. You don't want to go to that house that's hanging over the bluff that's having some foundation issues. Uh, you don't want to go near that because it, it's not quite up to code. You see, building codes exist to ensure that the occupants of a building are safe, that insurers are protected against unnecessary losses. That's why they exist. You likely remember the 2010 earthquake that devastated the already poverty-stricken nation of Haiti. One of the reasons that that earthquake in Haiti was so devastating is because the design of a home to weather a hurricane isn't altogether great for surviving a 7.0 magnitude earthquake. It seems that concrete is good for hurricanes, concrete's not so good for earthquakes. And just like our homes here in North Georgia, they probably wouldn't stand up too well if we were to pick them up and move them to the coast, probably wouldn't stand up well against a hurricane. I imagine that homes that are built close to the, I don't know, the San Andreas Fault in California, they probably are built differently than houses that are built in Orlando, if I had to guess. But the wise builder knows that there's something more important than simply building a pretty structure. We know that we don't want to live in a beautiful house that's falling off a cliff. So how do we ensure that the house that we build is able to stand up against the tests that come over it over time? Well, the answer is given to us here in verse 24. Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The answer to to being able to ensure that the house we build stands the test of time is by hearing Jesus' words and doing Jesus' words. This is the conclusion to this sermon that Jesus has been preaching. And so for that first audience, you know, we've stretched this out over a few months, but for this first audience, they've just taken in the entire context of the Sermon on the Mount. They've just heard everything. And the application is this. If you truly, truly really want to be citizens of the kingdom, then you've got to hear the king and obey the king. Don't get me wrong. The Sermon on the Mount's got a lot of moral teaching. Do this. Don't do this. Behave this way. Don't behave that way. But we need to not forget the keys that Jesus gives us to unlock the sermon. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And in spite of the fact that those guys all had a look of righteousness, their house looked good. We understand what Jesus is saying here, though. Their house was built on very shaky ground. You see, in order for our righteousness to surpass their righteousness, then we've really only got one hope, and that's to find another source of righteousness. And that righteousness, it doesn't come from self. It doesn't come from our good deeds. It doesn't come from the things that we do because our best righteousness that we can produce is no better than filthy rags, according to the prophet Isaiah. The only righteousness that can surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees is righteousness that comes from God. And that righteousness is, is found way back where we considered how we started this journey. Remember what Jesus said to begin the sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? There's the kingdom of heaven. Who, belong, who gets the kingdom of heaven? Well, those who are poor in spirit. Well, what does poor in spirit mean? Poor of poor spirit, poverty of spirit, comes from a recognition of the bankruptcy of our spiritual condition. That, that's that recognition of just how empty our spiritual condition is on our own. We've got nothing to offer when it comes to, to our own righteousness, our own self-righteousness. we got nothing. We are in abject poverty. And if we think for a second that we contribute anything to our salvation, then we're, real, we're really not poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Why? They shall be comforted. Well, that's not about being sad at a funeral. Again, we're in the context of what's being said here. This is about a, a recognition, a response to our poverty of spirit. When we recognize just how, po- how impoverished we are, spiritually speaking, on our own course, that's a, that's, a grief, that's a situation that results in grief. When we realize how desperate our condition is, then that ought to result in grief over that condition. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek. And what happens to the meek? They inherit the earth. Remember, the meek, it's not a weakness. It's not not an inability or an ineptitude at making decisions. The meek are simply those who recognize their station. Meekness isn't weakness. It's it's how we relate to God. It's how we relate to others on the basis of how we understand our reality. I, I could keep going here, but the point is this the Sermon on the Mount is designed to eradicate any sense of self-importance and any sense of self-righteousness from our hearts. And when you take all that away, you're finally ready to truly hear the words of Jesus and actually live them out day by day. You see, when we do that, Well, something happens to the house that we've been building. It turns out that the house we've built, this this spiritual house that Jesus is is talking about here, it looks just like our neighbor's house. It it looks just like the house next door, except it faces the storm, it faces the rain from above, and the, the flood from below, and the winds from the side. And the house still stands. The house that we've built faces the pandemic and still stands strong. The house that we've built faces the job loss. It faces the the death of a spouse. It faces the daily troubles that life in a fallen world creates. And it still stands strong. Why? Why? Because the builder understands that the house is it's more than just shingles, it's more than just pretty vinyl siding, it's more than just the window dressing. See, for the builder of that house, if you dig down deep, you'll find that the house is actually sitting on something far more substantial. It's built on the idea that, that being a citizen of the kingdom of God is about more than simply saying you're a citizen. It's about more than just simply listening to the words of the king. Being a citizen of God's kingdom results in total allegiance to the will of the king in all things, at all times, in all places. That's the wisdom of the man who builds his house on the rock. He understands the building codes. But there's another builder that Jesus points to, and it's a foolish builder, and the foolish builder doesn't pay attention to the codes. Instead, the foolish builder absolutely ignores all the warnings. You know, anytime I've been to the beach, I, I find myself compelled to understand how, how they're able to build these massive homes there right on the, right on the, the shore. Uh, the construction sites where these houses go up, they usually involve some simple things, like a, a giant hole with big piles of sand beside the hole and, and usually some sort of large equipment and cranes and things like that that they're having to use to, to make sure that the house will stand. My assumption, and I could be proven wrong because I have no knowledge of how this works, my, my assumption is that they just have to dig until they hit something solid. Is that right? Any builders? Can, is that basically what happens? They dig until they hit something solid. Imagine a builder who decided to build his house on the beach Without digging down deep, just pour a concrete slab right there on top of the sand. It might look pretty, but it's not going to fare too well when the next storm comes ashore. In fact, it may even look identical to the house that, that dug all the way down to something solid, but the outcomes are guaranteed to be different the man who builds that way is a foolish man cuz he ignores the codes he ignores the warnings he ignores the consequences of what happens in building his life on such a shaky foundation we need to understand that the sermon on the mount it is a warning when we go back and start in Matthew chapter 5 and read through the end of chapter 7 the sermon on the mount is a warning it warns us against empty religion It warns us against self-righteousness. And I think one of the things that's become very clear is that Jesus' sermon here is not about a bunch of do this and don't do that. The Sermon on the Mount is concerned far more about be this, don't be that. And failure to heed these warnings, listen, there's consequences when we disregard the warnings. Uh, Consider what Jesus has said in this chapter alone, back in chapter 7, verse 13, he promised destruction for those who travel the broad path. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 through 20, he promised that fire would burn up the unproductive branches. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he promised a categorical rejection of the disobedient. And here in verse 27, he warns that the fall of the disobedient will be great. Well, it raises a very important question Is Jesus trying to frighten people into the kingdom? Is Jesus trying to frighten people into the kingdom with these stern warnings, with these, this language of destruction and, and, and judgment? Is that what Jesus is trying to do here, to, to terrify us, to follow him? Well, i often said that fear is not a good motivator for saving faith. But that doesn't diminish the fact that there is a frightening reality that we have to deal with. We need to understand that Jesus talks about hell much more than he talks about heaven. D.A. Carson explains it this way He says, If you're sleeping soundly in a house desperately threatened by rising floodwaters, you may thank me for pounding at your door to rouse you. At the very least, you are not likely to accuse me of frightening you into safety. Frighten you, I shall. Effect your removal to a safe place, I may attempt, but you would not accuse me of frightening you into safety. If you were so attached to your home that you could not bear to leave it, you might conceivably choose to stay with it and run the risk of perishing. Or if you remained honestly oblivious to the danger, you might dismiss me as a fool But while I tried to frighten you to safety, you would not accuse me of doing so. Similarly, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by honestly attempting to frighten men and women into the kingdom, into salvation. Now, you may not believe that a hell exists. In that case, you may dismiss Jesus as a liar or a fool. Alternatively, you may be so attached to your sin... That even the threat of final and catastrophic judgment may not induce you to leave it. But you will foolishly, or but you will be foolish indeed if you simply accuse Jesus of frightening you into the kingdom. Here's the thing you can hear what Jesus says and keep doing what you're doing, you can build a house that is filled with all the trappings of a good person. People drive by on your street and they look and they say, well, a good person lives there. The lawn's manicured, the siding's pressure washed, the Christmas lights are even hung this time of year. But if you never come to Jesus with a poverty of spirit, with a grief over sin with a meekness in attitude, then your house will not stand. It might look like a million dollar beachfront mansion, but at the first sign of trouble, it's nothing more than a pile of rubble. So, does the warning of judgment? against all sin, including our self-righteousness, including our empty religion, does that not lead us into that first virtue of the kingdom of God? Poverty of spirit. The question then we have to ask, under the assumption that this is a room full of born-again Christians, that there's a crowd of Christians who are watching at home today. Do we just disregard these words? These don't apply to us because we're all erecting our home and it's on a good foundation. Is that what we do here? Well, I really appreciate what John Stott said. He said, in applying this teaching to ourselves, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read and that the church is a dangerous society To join. For in reading the Bible, we hear the words of Christ, and in joining the church, we say we believe in Christ. And as a result, we belong to the company described by Jesus as both hearing his teaching and calling him Lord. Our membership, therefore, lays upon us the serious responsibility of ensuring that what we know. And what we say is translated into what we do. For those who are in Christ, we hear these warnings, we find ourselves somewhat unnerved by the danger in Jesus' words. Then May the words of the old hymn give us peace. you're in good hands, and the house that's built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ is a house that shall not fall. But if you're here today and you've built a house on your own self, you've built a house on your own supply of righteousness, if you've built your house on your own list of good works, don't be surprised when the, when the flood comes, and the house cannot stand. Today, I would invite you the opportunity To come to the Lord Jesus Christ in a brokenness of spirit, in a meekness of heart, to take his yoke upon him, for you'll find that his burden is easy. Let me encourage you today to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to build your house on the rock. Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm thankful for the Sermon on the Mount and for the way that it speaks to us and the way that it warns us the way that it cautions us not into a righteousness of self but into pursuing the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Lord I pray that we might heed the warnings contained in this last chapter that we would recognize that if we disregard them we do so to our own peril. Some might accuse you of scaring us, of frightening us. But I would thank you for warning us, for giving us time to react, to respond, to take the hand of salvation that's been extended to us. Lord, if there's any here today whose house is built on anything but Christ, then I pray that they might tear off the trappings of good works. They might remove all the all the works of self-righteousness. Indeed, they might purge themselves of all the Christian-sounding acts of their life. That they would dig down deep and that there they would hear Christ and not just be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. But That all the things we say we believe and that all the things we hear about what we believe might be translated into how we live our life each and every day. And so God, if there's any in our midst or any at home watching who on this day need to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and the saving relationship with him, when they have the courage to come with poverty of spirit, with a grief for their sin, with meekness, and that today they might hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, for those in the room and at home who are faithfully walking with you, thank you, God, that in the midst of a storm, the house always stands strong. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together and have a time of response if you'd like to pray. Maybe here you need to receive Jesus. I'd give you that opportunity today. If you're home and you're ready to receive Jesus, then then reach out to us. We're happy to, to, to talk with you and, uh, and have that conversation. Maybe you're here and you're just overwhelmed with, with God's grace and God's provision and God's protection of you and, and the fact that the house stands strong and you just need to just pause and worship and give him thanks. You can do that just, just at your seat. Just, just reflect and give thanks to God for his, his gracious hand. We're going to sing together and you respond as the Lord would lead. It's been good to worship the Lord Jesus today, amen? Gosh, I love that song. That is a that is a that is a fantastic song. Um, so, uh, still some tickets available. I checked just before I came over here. So uh, so nobody snagged them up while we were while we were meeting here. So uh, so we may have shut the Wi-Fi off so you couldn't do it. I may or may not. So uh, we didn't. I'm just kidding. Uh, but there are some tickets available. Uh, you guys look good today. This is a good full house today. It's COVID full. Uh, that's what we call this. This is COVID full. But uh, but uh, you guys you guys look good and sound good today. So so thanks for coming. Um, just a couple of quick things. Don't forget uh, we are uh, we've got a candlelight service. Uh, we're going to do candlelight, and, and we're actually going to have communion at the candlelight service. Uh, now, we're not doing it the, the way that that uh, that spreads around uh, creepy cruddy things. And so, uh, so if you're the last person in the back who has to touch the offering pl- or the plate last, don't worry. Uh, we ordered those little um, all-in-one things, so uh, so you can. It's all in one little cup, like like they're separate. The bread's not in the juice because that would be gross. Uh, <laughs> So, so it's 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 sanitary. It's clean. Uh, you know, we hadn't had the Lord's Supper since uh, since. Goodness gracious! Maybe last, maybe last Christmas, uh, and so we felt like it was time to, to, to go ahead and deal with that. Uh, so we're going to do candlelight in communion on the 24th of December. So go ahead and mark your calendar for that, um, and uh, and we look forward to that. It's always a always a special event. And um, if we don't get to see you, I know a lot of traveling starts next weekend. We uh, certainly pray for your safety and uh, and uh, may it be a. a, a Enjoy yourself and enjoy the time you have with family and, and loved ones and friends. So let's pray together and, uh, and you'll be dismissed. God, we're grateful for your goodness to us. God, thank you for the, the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for uh, his, his coming in glory. Lord, we certainly celebrate the birth of Jesus this time of year, God, but may our eyes be drawn forevermore to the second coming of the Lord when you come and make all things right. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for those gathered here today. We ask your blessings on each family, particularly as, as Christmas celebrations will begin and in, in, in growing earnestness over the days to come. Lord, may it be, uh, may it be a blessed season. May you um, protect our homes and, and our families and our businesses from, uh, from this pandemic. And may we be faithful to you in, in, uh, in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. thanks for listening if you would like more information about chattanooga valley baptist check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org if you would like to join in person we worship every sunday morning at ten we're just minutes from downtown chattanooga we hope to see you soon